if Job knew the end of the story already, and he knew that, I don't know how long it was from here to the end of the story, but a year from now, six months from now, ten years from now, that everything would be wonderful, then you could live with it. But it's like going to some place that you've never been for the first time. It seems like it'll take forever because you don't know when it's going to end. Well, he doesn't know that there's going to be an end to this. So it's just really emotionally and psychologically difficult for him. And he continues to talk about some of the factors that uh, concern him. So 7 through 10. Wait, I was going to say that um, I always think about him as if like the book is all it is. And he has all this awful stuff happen, but he sits there and talks about it until God comes and makes it better. So like... The conversation is like all that happened or something. But I don't think that's necessarily how it was. Right, right, yeah. As if he's in nonstop conversation. Right, until, he just yeah. sits there and complains and talks about it, and then it all gets better. But it's worse when you think about how he has to just figure out somehow how to go on with daily life while dealing with all this. Yes. Well, like verse 3 when he says, I'm allotted months of vanity. Well, it hasn't had been months that it would take to say what we've heard so far. Right. So, yes, I am assuming that, uh, you know, they, these guys get together uh, once a week for their, uh, you know, discussion or something. I don't know how that worked. But, uh, but yeah, it is taking longer than maybe we realized. Good point. All right, 7 through 10. Remember that my life is but breath. My eye will not again see good. The eye of him who sees me will behold me no more. Thine eyes will be on me, but I will not be. My cloud vanishes, it is gone. So he, go, he who goes down to Sheol does not come up. He will not return again to his house, nor will his place know him anymore. So he's saying, you know, I, I'm, I'm really fragile, and I won't last long. And God, you'll you'll be looking for your favorite target, and I'll be gone. And just kind of like the cloud that it just it just vanishes, you know. So I'll just I'll just die, and it'll be over with. And it will be too late for God to vindicate him. I think a lot of what he says when he thinks about how quickly his life will be over is, you know, if God was going to do something to rectify the situation, he's got to do it now. Cause it's going to be too late. You know, God may decide, oh, I made a mistake, I shouldn't have persecuted him, but it'll be too late to make it up to him because he'll be gone. Uh, he has lots of figures to talk about how short his life is. He compares it in verse uh, uh, 6 to a weaver's shuttle, in verse 9 to a cloud, in verse 7, you know, uh, to a breath. Uh, he's going to uh, compare it later to a runner, to a swift reed boat, to an eagle, to a flower that withers, to a shadow, and so forth and so on. A bunch of things that say it's really brief and it doesn't have much substance to it. It's just, it's really fragile and it's gone quickly. And when it's gone, it's gone. I'm not coming back. <laughs> you know, so, you know, this is, God's almost going to lose his opportunity to right the terrible injustice that he has uh, occurred in Job's life. Comments and questions about that? There is no doubt that Job is saying some things that he shouldn't say. Now, there's no doubt about that, among other things, because by the end of the book, Job repents. <laughs> and God uh, uh, accepts that repentance. Um, Job, Job went too far with some things, and he said some things he shouldn't. On the other hand, Job was honest, and Job sent him to the Lord, 
and God favored Job over his friends, that's for sure. Told the friends they were going to have to come through Job to get reinstated with the Lord. So, but, but, but remember that as we go through this, we're not bound to say everything Job said was the right thing to say. We still have to take into account his suffering. That helps us, you know, understand this more. But, but you know, he's going to say some pretty strong things in this next section. So 11 to 21. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I the sea or the sea monster that you set a guard over me? If I say, my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you frighten me with dreams and terrify me by visions, so that my soul would choose suffocation, death rather than my pains. I waste away, I will not live forever. Leave me alone, for my days are but a breath. What is man that you magnify him, and that you are concerned about him, that you examine him every morning and try him every moment? Will you never turn your gaze away from me, never let me alone until I swallow my spittle? Have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you set me as your target, so that I am a burden to myself? Why then do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I will lie down in the dust, and you will seek me, but I will not be. So he doesn't restrain his mouth, as he says in verse 11. He's going to say what he really thinks. And by the time he gets done with this, we'll know what he really thinks. He's speaking out of the anguish of his spirit. He is just overwhelmed. And so what does he ask God in 12? Am I the sea or a sea monster? What does he mean by that? Well, he says that you set a guard over me. So, what's he saying? Am I, it's almost like, am I this wild beast that you have to watch over all the time? Yes, a wild beast that might be a threat to the universe. You know, am I this horrible sea monster that could get unleashed and could do great destruction? So you've got to, you know, fence me in and chain me down and, you know, do all this stuff. I mean, what do you think I'm going to do anyway? You know, what kind of damage can I do? You know, and then he thinks, well, maybe I can at least get some relief when I sleep. But what happens when he sleeps? His bad dreams. Yeah, nightmares. And he attributes that to the Lord. You frighten me with dreams. You won't let me even get some rest when I'm asleep. You know, any way he turns, the Lord is torturing him. Well, he really gets to the point where he'd rather die, verse 15, because he goes back and forth on that one, uh, as most people do uh, in that situation. And, <laughs> wow, what does he say in verse 16 that he wants God to do? Yeah, just back off. You know, give me a few days of respite. You know, most of the Bible writers want God to be closer. He wants God to be farther away because he sees God as the one who's tormenting him. So just, just forgive me for a little while. Let me, let me catch my breath. You know, verse 17 is ironic because we know something similar to this in Psalm 8. But this has totally the opposite point of Psalm 8. You know, what is man that you magnify him, that you're concerned about him? And Psalm 8 is like, wow, God, this is amazing. 
that you are so good to us and you've done so much for us. With Job, it's, well, who am I that you're so worried about squashing me and, and tormenting me? And, you know, why, why, are you, why, are you, why do you care? Why don't you just let me alone? Which is really what he keeps saying to God, just let me alone. Now, remember something that's so important for understanding Job. Job thinks God hates him. Job thinks God's tormenting him. Job thinks that God is attacking him. And that's his worst problem. That's worse than the physical pain and suffering. It's the concept that he has become an enemy of God. That God is shooting arrows at him. He doesn't understand that. You know, he doesn't understand why God, in verse 18, examines him every morning. You know, God's like, you know, constantly, you know, looking at him, looking over his shoulder, trying to find him in any fault. Again, he says in 19, will you never turn your gaze away from me? Or let me alone until I swallow my spittle. Can I just have time enough to at least swallow? You know, uh, have I sinned? What have I done to you? Oh, watch your man. Why have you set me as your target? You know, have I done so much harm that you had to punish me like this? Why do I have to become your punching bag? Now, again, he thinks that God is purposely trying to beat him up because God can't stand it. Now, is that mostly bothering him because he thinks he's innocent? Yes. And he can't figure out? Yes. Okay. Yes, and because he, he doesn't want to be alienated from God. You know, he wants to be close to God. He always was. Remember how concerned he was about God, always offering sacrifices for his children and all that. He was a God-fearing man, and to think that God is hating him now is really troubling to him. And 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 so this is just really, it's really hard. And it makes him look at God differently. He doesn't look at God as gracious and generous. He looks at God as like just constantly spying on him, trying to bring him down. You know... Um, he says, why then do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? Now, okay, if I've sinned, why don't you just forgive me? That's an interesting question, isn't it? Could God just forgive somebody? Well, not exactly. Not without what? Well, he has to be just. So therefore, yeah, somebody has to pay them. Yeah. So I think this is a plea that in some ways Jesus answers. You know, Jesus would enable him to pardon his transgression. Not that that's the reason he sinned. But just that whole concept, you know, if I've sinned, why don't you forgive me, is really what Jesus provides. You know, because otherwise, God can't do that. Um, so he's basically saying I haven't done anything why are you doing this to me if I have sinned just forgive me you know but let off you know uh, because I, I, you're going to seek me the end of verse 21 and I won't be there I mean he's convinced one of these days God's going to come, come looking for him you know it's kind of you, you know we've had a few of these deals where uh, DNA tests recently revealed some people who've been in prison you know convicted of various crimes didn't do them you know I, I heard there was a guy released after 20 or 30 years wasn't there okay, I remember there was one recently that was like 19 years okay yeah been in prison wrongfully 19 years 
DNA evidence reveals it really wasn't him. So they go back and release him. <laughs> you know, well, Job's saying, well, yeah, you're going to find out you made a mistake, but it's going to be too late for me. I'm going to be gone. And you're not going to be able to release me. And what do, what do you do if you find out the DNA evidence exonerates a man who's already dead? I mean, you can't exactly go back and, you know, suddenly give him his freedom or, you know, vindicate him or whatever. And so that's kind of what Job's thinking is, you know, you'll, you'll want to you'll apologize to me, but it'll be too late. Those are really, I, again, I think he's making some very strong statements against God. I mean, he's really, man, he's really upset with the Lord. But you have to understand his situation, and there's a sense in which he's right. I mean, you remember what God himself said. We can't forget this. You know, where God said in the end of 2-3, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. That's what God said about what he did. He was incited by Satan to ruin him without cause. So there is one sense in which... You know, some of what Job's saying is the same thing the Lord himself says, though certainly not with a respect for the tone here. Comments and questions here on chapter 7. Well, we got the next guy, Bildad. And um, you can imagine the friends are not especially happy about some of what Job's been saying. And so Bildad will respond, chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered, How long will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be a mighty wind? Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert what is right? If your sons sinned against him, then he delivered them into the power of their transgression. Well, how does Bildad view Job? A windbag. That's exactly right. Same word that's used in chapter 1, verse 19 for the wind that killed Job's children. Yeah, he thinks he's a windbag. You know, how long will you say these things? It uh, reminds you of uh, verse 19 of chapter 7 was literally, how long will you not turn your gaze away from me? Well, now he's saying, how long will you you know, say these things. That's a how long for him, too. He says, does, does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert what is right? I mean, we know God is not unjust. We know God rewards the blameless and he punishes the godless. You know, if that's true, if God always punishes the wicked and always blesses the righteous, if somebody's suffering, what do you know? He is not righteous. Yeah, that's his, that's his point. We know what God's like. We know God... You know, he doesn't pervert justice. He doesn't pervert what is right. God always does the right thing. Therefore, wickedness always leads to suffering. Righteousness always leads to blessing. So you can look at what's happening to somebody. You can tell whether they're righteous or wicked. That's his, that's his thought. That's what they think they can do. They think this is a mechanical sort of a thing that, you know, you give so much righteousness, you get so much blessing. And so, he says, if your son sinned against him, then he delivered them into the power of their transgression. What do you think about that? Very considerate. Cuts right to the chase. Yeah. <laughs> He's not a man to beat around the bush, is he? I mean, you know, if your children sin, well, they've got punishment. It's just as simple as that. Don't, don't complain. Don't, don't feel bad. 
you know, their deaths prove that they deserved it. That, that's the way he looks at it. If, if you died, yeah, well, you must have done something wrong. You know, because God never perverts justice. You know, all suffering is punishment for sin. That's his, that's his viewpoint. If that's true, then if they die young, well, then they sin. The result proves the cause. Now, Bill Dad's one of these guys. Go ahead. I was just thinking that it, it's kind of strange. What looks like suffering and uh, punishment sometimes turns out to be this you know, definite blessing. And so it's kind of like, okay, so this is a bad thing that happened, but then it turns out to be the best thing that ever happened. So was the person wicked or righteous or what? Yeah. It's, it, it, kind of following it logically, it falls apart a little bit. You're right. Yeah, yeah that's a good point. I agree. And, and you know, what do you see in Bildad's, you know, nature here? How would you describe him so far? Not tactful. Not tactful. <laughs> How about dogmatic? You know, we'll see Bildad as we go on. Basically, if a fact doesn't mesh with his theory, he ignores it. If a fact is missing, he invents it. You know, everything has to fit what he says and what he thinks. Now, remember what Job was always doing for his children. He was always offering those sacrifices just in case they had sin. So this is a double dagger to Job. And, and that's one of the things that's so aggravating about the friends. They are often wrong, but never in doubt. You know, it's like, well, this is it. You know, children said that they died, Job. Come on. Wow. That's, that's insensitive at best, but it's really just incredibly arrogant to think that he can tell exactly what happened just from the fact they died. My thoughts are coming through verse 4. It's kind of interesting that he's, he's almost, he's equating the suffering that Job has. He's almost... It, He's saying, your, your sons got what they deserved. And anything that happened to you, well, it's not. It's almost like he's saying it's not directly related to you. And that's not coming across very well. Well, Job didn't die. Right. So God must think he's not as bad as his sons his were. Sons, yeah. So there's a chance for him to straighten up and everything will be okay. I mean, there's this, there's this awful thing that's happened to somebody else because of their sin. And if it happens to have hurt you along the way, well, you just have to live with that. Yeah, although I, I think he will also end up seeing Job as somebody who probably merited some of that as well. But he thinks Job, Job's basically a good guy, so everything will turn out okay for him. Try five to seven. You would seek God and implore the compassion of the Almighty. If you are pure and upright, surely now he would arouse himself for you and restore your righteous estate. Though your beginning was insignificant, yet your end will increase greatly. Alright, so what's he encouraging Job to do? Repent. Yeah. Seek God, implore the compassion of God, be pure and upright. You know, I mean, if you'll do what's right, your destiny is always in accordance with your merit. So if you do the right thing, then 
you'll be blessed. You know, everything will be okay. You'll restore your, your estate. And there'll be great, great blessings. Now, it's kind of funny because God does end up restoring his estate. And he does it after he's repented. But it's certainly, what Job ends up repenting of are not, not any sins that caused these things, but sins he committed because of these things. With the help of his friends. <laughs> yes, with a liberal assist from them. Yeah, you're exactly right. That's a good point. Uh, so, so, if you look at the friend's idea, why do you serve God? To get stuff. Yes! You serve God to get more stuff. You know, they didn't have an idea of serving God because you love Him. Because it's right. You serve God because the more you serve God, the more He turns on that, uh, you know, blessing spigot and lets it flow down over you. My thoughts and comments uh, through verse 7. Of course, the word estate or whatever it may be used, but the way he says that is, you know, all the blessings you had before, he directly relates that to righteousness. It was the righteous estate. You know, the, the, the good things, the good righteous things you had, if you'll straighten up, you get more good righteous things. Mm -hmm. Yes. But you can't get more good righteous things if you don't, <laughs> if you don't straighten up. Yep. Repent. Got the right medicine, the wrong disease. <laughs> and even that, and you know, piles it on, you know, even though your beginning was insignificant. <laughs> These guys let their poetry get them carried away. Yeah, that, well, I forgot the number, 7,000 camels or something, or sheep, yeah. or whichever one was one, but, well, that was just a drop in the bucket. Yeah, 3,000 camels, 7,000 sheep, 500 oxen, 500 female donkeys. We oh. get twice that. I thought it was the beginning because when he was born. You thought what? I, yeah, I wondered about that. Whether it was the insignificant beginning was when he was born. Uh, I would have interpreted the way Chris did. Yeah, because he's going to restore the way you had in the beginning. Restore your righteous estate. And even though that was nothing, the end will be even greater is the way I read it. But it could. Uh, My common English Bible supports the way you're saying. What is this? Although your former state was ordinary, your future will be extraordinary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. But yeah, that's the way I take it as well. You know, you you haven't you haven't seen anything yet. You know, wait till God really blesses you. But but these guys, the, the they get carried away with what they're saying. You know, I mean, and you'll see them. Sometimes they'll sort of run on their own fumes and just get farther and farther into this. We're like that sometimes. You ever done that? You're kind of in the middle of an argument or trying to present your case, and the far, the longer you go, the more outspoken you become, the more exaggerated, the more outrageous. It's almost like your your previous comments, whether they're whatever, become your argument for further comments. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'll assume Good. that now. Yeah. We'll move, yeah. move forward. <laughs> We couldn't really prove those, but now we're going to rely on those to make more of a point. I think he's doing the same thing here. He says, now, if you're pure, I think he's also indicating or trying, insinuating what you had wasn't as great as it could be because you weren't pure. So yeah. you had some stuff, but that's nothing because of what's obviously now your problem with 
impurity. Right. Yeah, if you'd really straighten up, hard tell what you get. It'd be, it'd make what you had before look like nothing. Well, I wonder how much Bildad has. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you were not supposed to ask that. That's one of the problems with these guys. Some of the statements <clears throat> they make to Job, they never apply to themselves. You know, they'll say like, you know, Eliphaz said in the first speech, you know, everybody's a sinner. Well, if that's true, you know, I mean, how can a man be right before God or whatever he said that the, the that big vision gave him? Well, well, why did it apply to him? You know, uh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe Bildad was from the West. Let's see what he descended. He was a shoe height. He was a shoe height. He's a little guy. <laughs> yeah. Aww. I knew that would come up sooner or later. <laughs> Shortest man in the Bible they used to think was Nehemiah, but now they know it's Bildad the shoe height. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know where shoe was, but he was from there, I guess. This has a note that a shoeite is a descendant of Shua, son of Abraham and Keturah, an Arab. Yeah, okay. An Arab, that's what he's an Arab. <laughs> Aren't they all Arabs? Son of Abraham. <laughs> Abraham and Keturah had a lot of, a lot more kids. I would have guessed this was before Abraham, though. That's because they were big headbacks. I think it's an open question. Yeah. There's really so little given to us to give us a time period. How about 8 to 10? Inquire of past generations and consider the things searched out by their fathers. For we are only of yesterday and know nothing, because our days on earth are as a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you and bring forth words from their minds? Now, remember what Eliphaz appealed to. He appealed to his dream that made the hair stand up on the back of his neck and that vision that was just overwhelming and <laughs> that said two plus two is four. Uh, but, you know, what does Bildad appeal to here? ancestors. That's exactly right. Tradition. You know, you just inquire of the way the fathers and, and so forth have believed. You know, they'll tell you. You know, we don't know much, but, but we can go back and we can see the experience of the old men and what they say from the old men from their time. And so, and they all would say that, uh, you know, if you're wicked, you suffer. If you're righteous, you prosper. I think that's what he's trying to say. They'd say. Everybody else has come to the same conclusion throughout time. Absolutely. Don't even question. Sounds like a, well, they say. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Will they not teach you and tell you? So, yeah, that's right. Other thoughts on that? Well, his main argument is this next section, or at least the longest one. 11 to 22. Can the papyrus grow up without a marsh? Can the rushes grow without water? While it is still green and not cut down, yet it withers before any other plant. 
So are the paths of all who forget God, and the hope of the godless will perish, whose confidence is fragile, and whose trust a spider's whip. He trusts in his house, but it does not stand. He holds fast to it, but it does not endure. He thrives before the sun, and his shoots spread out over his garden. His roots wrap around a rock pile. He grasps a house of stones. If he is removed from his place, then it will deny him, saying, I never saw you. Behold, this is the way, this is the joy of his way, and out of the dust others will spring. Lo, God will not reject a man of integrity, nor will he support the evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame, and the tent of the wicked will be no more. Okay, so he's saying that the wicked don't last long. And he's giving you some comparisons, like the papyrus and the rushes that need water to grow. They wither before any other plant, you know. Uh, they just you know, get a little dry spell and they're gone. Um, so are the paths, verse 13, of all who forget God and the hope of the godless will perish. You know, they thrive for a short time and then they're gone. He shifts from the plant world to living creatures in 14 and 15. He speaks about what? Spiderweb. Yeah, spiderweb. What do you know about a spiderweb? Very yeah. substantial. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's just gone. You know, it doesn't endure. Um, and and you see uh, this, perhaps the spider, you know, thrives, and then he's gone. You know, and, and when he's gone, it's like, he's gone so much, nobody even remembers him being there. You know, he's just dealing with the fact that, you know, there's fleeting moments for the wicked, but then they're over. You know, the wicked has nothing substantial. You know, he doesn't last any time. And, uh, but, on the other hand, verse 20, God will not reject a man of integrity, nor will he support the evildoers. You know, so, if, if Job will just repent and become a man of integrity, then everything will be okay for him. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. But the thing with is. Job was a man of integrity. That's what it said in the very first verse of the book. So, you know, how come God rejected him if God doesn't reject him out of integrity? Of course, they're assuming since God, quote-unquote, rejected him, he must not be, he cannot be a man of integrity. You know, remind you of what they said to Jesus. You know, he trusts in God, let him rescue him now if he delights in him, for he said, I'm the son of God. You know, if you're so good, why are you suffering like this? You know, but if you will straighten up, you know, you'll be amazed at what God will do. He'll fill your mouth with laughter, your lips with shouting. So again, what is Bildad's motivation for serving God? To last long and have lots of stuff. Yeah. Is what you get out of it. It's because of the reward. I mean, he's not thinking about serving God because you love God. He's thinking about serving God because here's what it's going to get you. So that's Bildad. I don't know that he had a whole lot to say. And he said it pretty harshly. Did you talk about um, 16 through 19? Uh, some kind of something about a plant? And then it's 
Yeah, it may be. It's not clear to me who this is that thrives and shoots spread out. Right. But the idea is, whatever this is, it's gone like that. It's gone so much that, you know, they don't even know it's been there. Okay, so that's kind of like a wicked person who exactly. arrives and shoots up and then boom, right. they're gone. Right. Whatever he's talking about, whatever analogy he's using, it's the idea that the wicked man, he just flames out in no time. Okay, okay. Uh, that's Comments and thoughts. All right, look at Job's answer in chapter 9. Um, look at the first couple of verses. Then Job answered, In truth, I know that this is so. But how can a man be in the right before God? Now, you know, do Job and his friends exactly disagree? To a great extent, they don't. Job would agree with the idea that God blesses the righteous and punishes the wicked. That's his problem. If he didn't have the same viewpoint on that as the friends did, this wouldn't trouble him so much. And so he basically knows Bildad is telling him the truth, or at least he thinks so. But, but he's got a problem with this. I mean, how can you be in the right before God? How could you ever prove yourself right? You know, what can you do to vindicate yourself when God, you know, got the grades, you know, on the wrong line, the grade book, you know, and it looks like he's not done well when he really has. And so he, that's really what Job is concerned for, is how do you make God understand you're good and you don't deserve this? I thought to do verse 2. Or if he's referring to Bildad's last statement, you know, God will not reject the man of integrity, nor will he support the evildoer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's a little less obvious than some of Bildad's other. Yeah. You know, you could almost agree with that, not in the physical sense that he's applying it. So Job could be saying, look, I know that's true. Yes. I mean, I think he's saying this about that concept that the wicked perish and the righteous are blessed. I think that's the way. He knows that's true. He knows that the wicked man doesn't last any time. And the righteous, you know, everything will go well for him. That's not working. You know, that's his problem. You know, and so how do I, you know, what do you do to make a defense before God? Well, it depends on what it is. Okay, does he ever <laughs> does he ever get to a point where he realizes, oh, like it, that's not necessarily the case. It's not necessarily true that God always punishes the wicked and blesses the righteous. Perhaps. Boom, just like that. Perhaps. Okay. I mean, do we ever figure it out? Because <laughs> God says that. <laughs> but it depends on how you view that. You know, Bildad's saying you had all this stuff because you were an okay kind of guy, but if you'll be really righteous, you'll even get even more stuff. But at the end, he sums it up with a, I think, a, a, a true statement. I mean, a statement you can find other places, in yes. Proverbs and what else. Yes. And But it doesn't mean what he's saying it means. <laughs> yeah. 
It's almost like the apostles sometimes. They say the right thing, but they don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> well, you know, when they're around Jesus. Sometimes you can, you can have a principle of truth, but if you misapply it, it becomes wrong. Remember those proverbs about the fool with a proverb? How dangerous he was in that Proverbs 26, I think. You know, uh, Proverbs 26, uh, uh, 7 like the legs which are useless to the lame, so is a proverb in the mouth of fools. In verse 9, like a thorn which falls into the hand of the drunkard, so is a proverb in the mouth of fools. You know, he'll do a lot of harm with it. You know, because he doesn't know how to apply it properly. It's like when Peter says, now, you know, now I see that God's not a respecter of persons or something, then later on he's surprised that the Spirit is <laughs> coming on Cornelius or something like Absolutely. that. Absolutely. He said the right thing. Well, he said, yeah, the promise is to you and your children and all who are far off. <laughs> yeah. And he can't believe God wants to send it to Cornelius. That far <laughs> off. <laughs> far off. Just yeah. went down the street far off. That was scary. Well, but, but, and you think about how we are. You know, I was just thinking about some of how we do with serving God, thinking that it'll guarantee something we want. There's a lot of that. You know, I, I, I'm thinking about various conversations I've had with guys who do various things thinking that if they'll do this, God will get them a girl. You know, and then when they've, they've been good for a long time and they don't get the girl, then it gets discouraging. And it's like, well, but I thought if I do this and this and this, then I get a good girl come into my life. I don't want to get married. Or they think, oh no, I failed at this. Now God won't ever let me get married. Or whatever. You know, just different things that are like, we kind of set up our own parameter. You know, well, if I just do this, then God will do that. Well, wait a minute. And, and, and if that's what we're really doing, we ultimately come, become really selfish. You know, and here's what I noticed. Take, take a guy who's, you know, controlling his, uh, himself so that he can get a girl. Because he thinks, well, if I can go for a month or six months or whatever, then I will. Then if he ever fails, well, then he just binges. Because now it's over. Now I can't. Now it's worthless. He wasn't, doing, he wasn't trying to do what's right to serve God. He was trying to do what's right to get what he wanted from that's really the ultimate question of Job. Do you serve God to get what you want, or do you serve God because he's God? That was the whole experiment with Satan. You know, will a man serve God when he's not getting anything out of it? Or, do we, or does man only serve God just because he thinks it's the key to get some blessings? And that's a real challenge for us. It, yes, it's true, God punishes the wicked and he blesses the righteous. Their principle overall is true. But it doesn't mean that, well, so if I do this, I'll get this blessing. <laughs> if I mess up in that, then all is lost. It's not the way it works. All right, look at uh, Job's concern to try to find God, uh, 3 to 12. If one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him once in a thousand times. Wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has defied him without harm? It is God who removes the mountains, they know not how, when he overturns them in his anger. 
who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun not to shine and sets a seal upon the stars, who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea, who makes the bear, Orion, and the Pleiades, and the chambers of the south, who does great things, unfathomable and wondrous works without number. Were he to pass by me, I would not see him. Were he to move past me, I would not perceive him. Were he to snatch away, who could restrain him? Who could say to him, what are you doing? All right. Well, here's the problem. Job's innocent. God's punishing him unjustly. But how can you argue with God? Do you see the problem? No matter how righteous he was, how in the world could he deal with the overwhelming power and wisdom of God? You know, he'd just be overwhelmed. You know, he starts talking about the great, powerful things God's done and how puny he feels in comparison. What kind of things has God done? Mountains. Which are pretty stable. And Shakespeare. Yeah. God does these terrible, destructive things, but God also creates, verse 8, 9, 10. Look at the power of God. The power differential between Job and God is unfair. You know, God can do all these incredible things, destructive, creative, whatever. How can Job argue with him? How could Job even talk if he was in the presence of God? How could he stand up against him? He said, were he to pass by me in verse 11, I wouldn't see him. I couldn't even see him if he came past me. You know, uh, and, and were he to move past me, I would not perceive him. Were he to snatch away, who could restrain him? Who could say, what are you doing? You know, I mean, Job is, is depicting God as kind of a, a criminal that is beyond the reach of law. Who can stop him? Who can stand against him? Who could prove him wrong? How could you deal with God? Job feels like he's righteous. God's been unfair in punishing him, but he can't, he can't present that to God. God's too strong for him. God's too wise for him. Now, I, again, I think he's saying some things a little out of bounds here. Uh, and he gets worse in this chapter. But, but this shows you how he feels. The frustration is he can't get God to see he's righteous. And this really hurts him. Comments and questions. The one good thing about comments and questions in Job is if you forget to make it now, we'll come back across the same passage about five times. So you'll have other opportunities. Can we make the same comment each time? Yeah, well, we may. I probably will. Yeah. They do, so why can't we? Uh, it eventually gets rather uh, like, well, I think I've heard this somewhere before. What are, um, the, what are the chambers of the cell? Uh, I don't know. I'm assuming some kind of star constellation, but I don't know. What is common English? Where are you? The end of verse uh, 9 makes the bear Orion of Pleiades and... Uh, Southern constellations. Okay, there you go. Southern Cross, is that a... Um, that's, a that's a coastal, I think. I have a footnote to 37.9 which talks about storms coming out of the south. All right, so... 
Is this translated Orion and Pleiades and stuff as the same as we know them? Or I think so. Came from? Or? Yeah, I think so. I don't know. I doubt that Hebrew is the same. I think they're probably translating them into what we call those. Right. Would it be one of those cases where it would be impossible to know exactly? Because, like, how do you translate a constellation? I don't think so. I think they do know, but I'm not sure know. about that. Okay. I think they do. Because, actually, there's lots of information on the stars, even in the ancient world, and what they thought oh, about the stars. Okay. And that's, that was a pretty big thing back then. Probably more so than it was for us. Of course, the stars are still up there. kind of look about the same. So. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Well, that's neat. More information there was on the ostrich and the and some of the other animal names that are trying to translate. Uh, more difficult. The porpoise and the cool. <laughs> porpoise okay. and throne. And I mean, like like the bear, that would be Ursa Major, which we know as the Big Dipper. But they would have seen it as you know a bear, which if you look at it, apparently it looks like a bear to certain folks. Yeah, uh, I know almost I nothing about stars. Maybe turn, the Arabs. You turn just right. I mean, and and you can see the the correlation between how one one culture views a particular constellation and another, and you can match it all up and get to the Big Dipper, Orion the Hunter, and the Seven Sisters of the Pleiades. You've already said all about three times more than I know about all the stars, so. All right, well, 13, uh, 13 to 21. God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him crouch the helpers of Rahab. How then can I answer him and choose my words before him? For though I were right, I could not answer. I would have to implore the mercy of my judge. If I called and he answered me, I could not believe that he was listening to my voice. For he bruises me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not allow me to get my breath, but saturates me with bitterness. If it is a matter of power, behold, he is the strong one. And if it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I am righteous, my mouth will condemn me. Though I am guiltless, he will declare me guilty. I am guiltless. I do not take notice of myself. I despise my life. And he goes on. But... Um you know, God is so powerful. Not even the sea monster, the helpers of Rahab, can stand. You know, what chance does puny Job have? You know, how could he answer God? You know, I mean, he wouldn't know what to say. He'd have, he, you know, Job would have to be at his best to have any chance of making a defense before God. And if he ever saw God, he'd be overwhelmed and lose his composure entirely and wouldn't have a word to say. You know, he knows what to be like. You couldn't possibly deal with God. You know, if I were right, I couldn't answer. I just had to, you know, plead for mercy. I mean, you know, it was like, he just, he just, he'd just be so intimidated. Um, you know, for he bruises me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. God was unfair to him. But that's what God himself said. So in some ways you can't argue with that. Um, he won't allow me to get my breath. You know, he just keeps beating him up. You know, if it's a matter of power, well, he's a strong one, verse 19. If it's a matter of justice, who can, who can call him into account? You know, I mean, if God wasn't just, who's going to stop it? Uh, so he just feels overwhelmed by this. 
Though I am righteous, my mouth will condemn me. Though I am guiltless, he will declare me guilty. I mean, you know, I'd be so, so overwhelmed in God's presence if I did get a chance to make a defense that I, I'd end up blundering and saying the wrong thing and condemning myself anyway. You know, uh, I am guiltless. I mean, he, he firmly believes that he's innocent. So did God. But it doesn't matter because, you know, I, I, I despise my life. I, I, think, I think Job thinks that when he says he's innocent, He's more or less taking his life in his own hands. That he's going to make God mad. It's like he's saying God was not just. If he says he's innocent, then God's punishment is not deserved. And so he feels like to make that break with God and say that is just going to alienate God. So he despises his life. He's willing to just, you know, forget about his life and make his defense. Comments and questions. So, so God is God is intimidating. Yes. Is it wrong that God is intimidating? No. Is I, it? Un, I mean, is it an unfair advantage? I mean, like. Not really, because when God does appear, He intimidates Job. <laughs> some of what God, some of what Job says, is exactly what happens when God does show up. Mm -hmm. Job feels overwhelmed and he can't speak. Yeah, because I'm just, you know, in in one sense, is it fair that that God uses all these advantages that He has when dealing with us or with Job, or does He even use those advantages, so to speak? Yeah. Well. I mean, if he wanted to, he could wipe us all out and condemn us all at a moment. So, he's been merciful. So Job's really saying what God said. So you're saying he's wrong more because of his attitude? Yeah. Yeah. Well. So how, uh, could, how could he say it? I mean, how could he say it? And not be wrong. And not be wrong. Because what he's saying, I take it what you're saying is he's, what he's saying is right. Uh, he's, going, he's going too far. He says some right things, but he goes beyond that. In fact, here's the strongest statements. Look, look what he's about to say. This will really show that you can't justify this, I don't think. Verse 22 to 24. It's all one. Therefore I say he destroys the guiltless and the wicked. If the scourge kills suddenly, he mocks the despair of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the face of its judges. If it's not he, then who is it? Now that, that went too far. I mean, he, he just laughs at the innocent when they get punished. You know, he just gloats over being able to fry them. You know, that is not right. You know, or, or he's the one that blinds the eyes of the judges so that they make wrong judgments on the earth. He's really angry with the Lord right there, I think. And is saying things that I don't think there's any way to justify. God's immoral, is almost what he's saying. He's unfair. And he, he likes it when, you know, innocent people die. That's, that's not true. But I think it's, it, it's the frustration he feels. The, it's, oh, even egged on by his friends. It's like, I'm righteous, I'm righteous, I'm righteous, but God keeps beating me up and closing the door and, 
you know, and so it drives him to think of God in wrong ways. Obviously, one of the hard things about Job is we have so little in the book that just tells us, here's how you look at this statement, here's how you look at that statement. We have the broad general principles at the end of the book. But, but you know, we're much on our own to, to read these with the right tone and feel and to kind of evaluate when did Job go too far, when did he not, etc. Because we don't have something that just gives us an inspired accounting of that. So the, a lot of this is somewhat interpretive. It's kind of how you read it. How strongly you read it, even how you read it, the tone you read it with. You know, it doesn't tell you what the tone is here. So I'm probably, I'm probably taking a view of Job that's taking more seriously what he's saying. I'm not trying to water it down in the way I look at what I would take and say, well, he didn't really mean it that way. I'm going ahead and saying, well, I think Joe probably didn't mean it the way he said it. This is probably what he's really feeling. And saying, yeah, he said some outrageous stuff. And I think also he, he contradicts himself oh, many times. So he obviously, maybe at times, is just blathering, you know, and, and saying things that he shouldn't. But, you know, is, is, is jumping from point to point, trying to find an answer or trying to make sense of it or whatever it may be. So, yeah. I like 16, he, he makes a, uh, he kind of answers the objection before it ever occurs, you know. Yeah. If I called the answer, well, I couldn't believe he was actually speaking to me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's <laughs> just mocking me. That'd be like, you know, uh, you know he, so-and-so did it. And if you ask him, he'll say he didn't. But that, <laughs> You've already answered the, uh, you made the uh, excuse before you've ever gotten to the... And, and I believe probably some of the statements we're reading in chapter 9 are probably some of Job's most outspoken statements. Eventually, Job actually gets better. I, I, think, I think he goes really low here. And he's kind of up and down after this, but I think generally he's better. And if it's not him, then who is it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who else and and once again, that's using the previous conclusion to right. make the argument for that. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, obviously all this other is true, and if it's not God, then who else is it? <laughs> yes. You know, if God was not in charge of the universe, this would not be a problem. Yeah. But it he, or, or if, if, if he knew God was, uh, you know, didn't have good character, that wouldn't be a problem. This, this is a problem, because God is all-powerful, and God is righteous and just, and yet an innocent man is suffering. It's those principles that make this a problem. In a world where there was no God, this wouldn't be a problem. This is the way it is. Or if in a world where God wasn't really that righteous, it'd be no problem. This problem occurs because we live in a world where we have an all-powerful, all-righteous God, then how can the innocent people suffer like this? So this is, and this is why some people say, well, there is no God. Like, that's how they solve this problem. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, Job and his friends are not doing that. They're like, well, we know there's a God, so. Yeah, he didn't curse God and die. <laughs> yeah, so they have a different problem now. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Mom, this is making me think maybe this is not exactly the best place for this applies, but about um, how like Jesus fulfills the things that Job is looking for. Like, how he is a mediator between yes. God and man. Yes, the end of chapter 9, very much so. Okay. Yes. Yes, you see that a lot. Where some of the things Job longs for, Jesus fulfilled. Yeah. Somebody just forgive him, we looked earlier. And then what we'll see at the end of this, where he wishes there was just somebody who could kind of lay his hand on both of them and sort of serve as an intermediary. Oh, okay. Well, that's what he needed. That's Jesus. <laughs> There's a lot of places where Jesus correspond to the things that Job saw that he needed. Other comments? All right, well, let's stop here for tonight. And we can, uh, work on starting about 9.25 for next week. I thought we started at 5.30. Yeah, I know. We're going to make it a little later, maybe 925. Okay. I'm taking choice. Or a Seem to be working. Well, so it's a website.